You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Major General Reserve's Gershon HaKohen has been a recent has been a senior research fellow at the Bagan Sadat Centre for Strategic Studies and he wrote a perspectives paper three years ago that was published on its website on the occasion of the commemoration of the Yom Kippur War. Gershon served in the IDF for 42 years. He commanded troops in battles with Egypt and Syria. He was formerly a corps commander and commander of the IDF military colleges. We're almost on the eve of the Yom Kippur War commemoration of uh, 50 years. Yes. I mentioned to you that you wrote an article where you analysed why Israel didn't do very well in that war. Do you want to explain what you thought of that, what you expressed about the, the war, why you thought Israel had uh, more than concern over the fact that it didn't know and was caught by surprise? This is a an opinion coming from operational analysis. It's not that IDF didn't make quite well. Every war, no military organization really making only effective uh, operations. The friction is always accompanied by trial and error and learning. But what happened, first of all, we must try to realize why the Israeli society, the Israeli leadership and IDF leadership dedicated themselves happily to the idea that all failure is due to the surprise and to the intelligence failure uh, to really bring the information and analysis that war is coming. Why they dedicated to that uh, diagnosis and not to other aspects of uh, their holistic engagement? Because this is a, a way out from embarrassment, a way out that could really bring the promise that all lessons have been learned and now it will be absolutely promised that it will never happen again but it neglected neglected the whole difficulties, operational and tactical difficulties that uh, happened to the troops uh, along all uh, fronts due to a new form of warfare, especially in the southern front guided by Anwar Sadat. And I'll emphasize it again. It is very easy to bring all uh, lessons just to one corner to say that the intelligence officers and their leader, the, the chief of intelligence branch, failed due to hybris, due to conception, etc. And if it wouldn't happen, then we will really bring the success and the victory of 67. The main problem is exactly 
by ignoring the realizations that Sadat uh, consciously made all effort to bypass the inferiority of the uh, Egyptian army from uh, 67. What really he succeeded to design in his main operational idea is what is called in the United States a military conceptual framework today, deniability. He realized that, that he is suffering with his efforts and armor from definite inferiority, that they are inferior to the Israeli Air Force in all aspects, inferior to armored Israeli units in all aspects, instead of thinking in the method of what is learned in Western society culture or in Harvard Business Management School, what he did is by realization of his inferiority, he built all the operational planning upon the awareness that they are inferior. He didn't try to overcome inferiority by being better in, in, that, in that dimensions. What it means, instead of coming to his Air Force commander, telling him, listen, in one year we are going to fight with the Israelis. Your Air Force is inferior in this and this and this uh, dimension. Bring me a plan how you are improving yourself to come to the level of Israeli Air Force. He did the opposite. He said, I'm aware that you are an absolute inferiority. Don't worry. I'm taking that premise in my planning. So instead of bringing his Air Force to be equal to Israeli Air Force, he supported his whole operational idea, not upon Air Force, but upon air defense system, Russian air defense system with SAM-2, SAM-3, even SAM-6, SA-6. What they succeeded to do with it, not to overcome the Israeli Air Force superiority, but to deny all aspects of the Israeli Air Force uh, in superiority. It means in the battlefield that's well protected by that well-organized air defense system, the Air Force, the Israeli Air Force superiority just have been denied. The same he did to the Israeli Armour Corps. Instead of trying to bring the Egyptian armored units to succeed, to engage, and to overcome their inferiority regarding the Israeli armor units, he built his operational idea upon masses of infantry uh, equipped with anti-tank missiles, Saga, and they denied the Israeli Air Force maneuverability, just taken from the IDF the massive power in within which from 56 to war to 67 
uh, IDF succeeded to control the battlefield by maneuvering. What actually succeeded to do so that is to deny the potential of maneuverability. For that, he didn't plan to enter to the depths of Sinai. He planned just to take a piece, a short strip beyond the Suez Canal in the east side. And it was for him enough. All his strategic idea was not dependent upon the tactical achievements in the field. It means it doesn't matter whether he will get 10 kilometers eastern to Suez Canal or five kilometers. It's the very fact that he succeeded to deny the feeling of security and uh, self-confidence of the Israeli whole uh, operational idea, it was for him enough in order to create a trend that by the fact that the Israeli society losing their whole trust upon IDF, then something will happen. He's not controlling what will happen as an outcome that blend in a, an engineering linear calculation. He made a kind of shock with a belief that something will really happen later. By that, his strategical idea really worked definitely good. But for how, but not for long, though. First, I mean, the war, the war turned um, course uh, very quickly, though. This might have been the initial uh, element that uh, caught Israel uh, off guard, but eventually um, didn't uh, Israel uh, essentially turn things around and emerge, of course, uh, victorious from the, from the war in only a short space of time? I think that operationally, IDF succeeded to get an absolute victory. But Sadat, on the other side, succeeded to bring a very concrete achievement to the Egyptian people, first of all, by bringing them back the honor that they are struggling quite well with the Israelis. Secondly, that at the end, he get he succeeded to get all Sinai. Actually, he got it. The fact that he got it with a diplomatic negotiation guided by President Carter, okay, but the initial conditions for that prepared in the war. But if we are coming back to the war in itself, the very fact that in the first night he succeeded to cross with more than 100,000 infantry equipped soldiers that succeeded to destroy the waves of armored battalions of IDF attacking the Suez Canal. This was the main factor that defeated Southern Command in the 8th of, 8th of October. The counterattack of the 8th of October just failed due to the fact that the higher echelon didn't realize that we are not anymore playing the same game as 67 war. The first to realize that it is not the 67 war happened to be the young officers, Lieutenant Captain 
company commanders, platoon commanders. And they found difficulties to convince the higher echelon command that they are not really understanding the form of the new warfare. The same about Air Force. They attacked again and again without success due to the fact that all plans didn't really take seriously the presence of massive anti-aircraft uh, missiles. So he succeeded to deny the superiority of two main operational factors in the Israeli operational idea, the Air Force and the Armour. The realization of that was very necessary to understand what really happened. The fact that the whole mythos just subordinated the, the intelligence failure and put everything upon that, this is a reason that would explain why even later, in 1982, in the Lebanese war, IDF still worked with the same operational uh, idea within which he entered to 73 war. It means mainly based upon armored divisions with not enough infantry, with not enough alliances between Air Force and the tactical uh, troops in the field, in the land forces. It means that lessons that could be learned happened to be blockaded by cognitive obstacles. And this is a very important story. Uh, you were you were too young to take part, weren't you? You were still not uh, of, uh, of an age to serve in the IDF, were you? I'm speaking with Major General Reserves Gershon Hakon, who was interviewed last year in Haaretz by Shani Littman, in which it was mentioned that Gershon was 66 years of age. My calculation makes Gershon's age at the time of the Yom Kippur War as being 17. Yes, sir. I was an infantry a soldier. Okay. I crossed Suez Canal with uh, the Air Force to fight the Egyptian Air Force airport to purify it and in the first weeks in Sinai we defended the rear echelon against commando Egyptians commando units. So I participated in the war in the days of defensive operation and in the counter offensive after from a 15 16th October, we I, with my units crossed canal, Suez Canal at 18th of October to the west side of Suez Canal. I somehow thought you were a younger man, Gershon. That's, uh, that's my, my mistake. You know... I uh, was young. Yes, <laughs> I was really young. You know, have, have you been to uh, Egypt, you know, in, in Cairo the, to commemorate this uh, war? They have a bridge called the the Sixth of October Bridge, which uh, which is used by um, was used by Egypt to uh, to celebrate the, the victory over Israel in uh, in the Sinai War. 
this is a bridge that, uh, well, of course, uh, it, it is a, it is an illusion that they give to the public that they were victorious, but uh, for a time they had the impression that they they might well have been. The 6th of October Bridge is an elevated highway in central Cairo. The bridge and causeway crosses the Nile twice from the West Bank suburbs east through Gazira Island to downtown Cairo and on to connect the city to other highways that leads to the Cairo International Airport to the east. Its name commemorates the date of the crossing, which commenced the outbreak day of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Yes, they actually succeeded to deliver to the people uh, the story of victory. And it is not because they are good liar. It is because the essence of warfare is that nobody could really tell a story of definite victory. The only definite victory that we mm. uh, experienced in the last centuries was the definite victory in May 1945 in Berlin. But no war could really repeat that victory, not the United States in Vietnam, not in Iraq, even though Saddam Hussein was uh, killed and his regime collapsed by looking after with a retrospect, uh, with respect, a, a, a reflection about what happened, it is open to discussion. The same about the Egyptians. It means that war, in contradiction to a football game, football game is really definitely bringing an outcome. The story after, the narration, not changing the outcome of the game. In a warfare, the story that we are telling after, the trends that happened to emerge from this event of the warfare, are part of the warfare, and they are really part of a calculation whether at all we succeeded to bring a victory. Sometimes a victory in all battles would never bring and promise a real victory regarding strategic affairs. The same happened to the United States Army in Vietnam almost succeeding to get victory in all engagement and yet not succeeding to bring an end with a definite victory. Now this uh, commemoration of uh, the Yom Kippur War, which I don't know when it's going to be reaching a peak in, in Israel, we I thought I would bring it up already because uh, we're on the verge of Yom Kippur later this week. So from uh, from a Jewish calendar perspective, it is now 50 years since uh, yes. since the war. So what what's happening in, in Israel? What's the uh, the is there an attitude uh, that's pervading Israel to remember this this war in some way, in some major of way? Course, of course, uh, first of all, uh, several uh, artistic uh, creation happened to appear like the movie uh, about uh, the position, what is called Hamezach, a very dramatic movie. This is an Israeli movie. I, 
It is not a documentary movie. It is like Saving Private Ryan. Yes. It is a movie that uh, is based upon a real story, but it is a, a movie that was conducted according to the standards and conventions of uh, a cinema movie, which is really important to contemplate what really is the impact of what happened 50 years before upon the Israeli public opinion now. They surrendered to the Egyptians and the whole issue is whether it is better to surrender than to just find yourself fighting to your dead end, like Mitzada. So it is a, a well entrance to an Israeli discussion. I absolutely recommended to, uh, to see it and to discuss it. Actually, we must understand that in a way, even the old conflict, political conflict, the sociological conflict in Israel right now is in part at least an outcome of that war in 73. A lot of those who participated in this war are those who are leading today the protests. It means that for 50 years, they dedicated their life just to live normal life. Now that they are ending their career, they are coming to a look again in tranquility about what happened to them. And they are beginning to ask questions about all that. And it is really not only an impact, a side effect from what happened in the war, it is really interesting to realize that it was directed definitely by the way Anwar Sadat wrote his uh, target and purpose for this war. What he said, that he will not succeed to defeat IDF, but he will succeed to bring a shock to deny trust of all Israeli national defense concept and trends that will happen step after step, stage after stage from that shock will change the whole Israeli society. Actually, he succeeded. So just tell me this um, important uh, film that you're talking about, uh, can you tell me who it's uh, directed by and what the name is of the this this film you just were talking about? You, if you will just put in Google Hamezach, it is called, you will find all the information. Hamezach. The film to which my guest, Major General Reserves Gershon HaKohen, refers is called Hamezach, which is a Hebrew word meaning a key or peer in English. The film's title in English is The Stronghold. Unfortunately, it does not appear to be on the program for GIF, the Jewish International Film Festival that kicks off across Australia next month and I'm not sure how listeners can get to see it at the moment. After sustaining a surprise Egyptian attack during the Yom Kippur War, a desolate Israeli outpost falls under siege. While the surviving soldiers prepare for a final hopeless battle, the doctor comes up with an alternative plan that may save them, but it comes at a heavy price. The film was directed by Leo Chafetz and stars Michael Aloni, who came to prominence from the series Stiesel. 
The Jerusalem Post film critic Hannah Brown has written a comprehensive review of the film The Stronghold and I hope to get her back on the show to talk about it and its significance. Hannah Brown ends her review of the film hoping that many who are judgmental about decisions made on the battlefield see this film, which might change their perspective. And that is one of the greatest compliments it is possible to bestow upon a movie, she says. From my discussion with Gershon Hocohen, it is apparent that it has certainly had the desired effect on him. It is really recommended. It is not easy for a really just enjoying a movie. It is not a movie to come in to enjoy. Yes. But it is important. It is a, a very, very unforgettable experience. When, when you mentioned the movie, I, I was hoping that you weren't going to mention the movie uh, about uh, Golda Meir, which has just been released uh, in Israel. I didn't see that yet, so I cannot <laughs> judge it. But of course, it is 50 years later, in the same way that the movie about Winston Churchill, The Dark Hour, how it is called, it was made just 75 years later, or even 80 years later. So it is taking time to really beginning to get awareness about events like that. Yes, it's the same as uh, was with the the Holocaust. The Holocaust stories didn't emerge immediately after after yes. the Second World War. It took a long time for people to, uh, to to digest it and be able to express it to others. Yes, if you are reading Hebrew, it is now in shops, even in United States, a book, a, an article of mine is collected in that book, edited by Gidon Avital, it is called Yom Kuda. It is a very, very good collection with a lot of articles about all aspects, a cultural, political, international influence by United States, Russia, that brought the war and uh, followed after the war and what really happened to IDF. It is uh, an exploration of a lot of ideas. The book in Hebrew that Gershon has just mentioned is titled Yom Pekuda by Gideon Avital Epstein. Yom Pekuda meaning command day. It comprises articles and personal columns organised by topic and allowing for an observation of the Yom Kippur War looking back on 50 years, on what happened then and since, on the conclusions and lessons and on the critical impact of the Yom Kippur War on Israeli society. Tell me, Gershon, when you write pieces like the one we've been really talking about today, uh, about the Yom Kippur War and the failures of the military and the intelligence, when you write, do you... Uh, do you write in English or do you write in Hebrew and have your work translated? I write in Hebrew. It is easier to me to write in Hebrew. It was translated. So do you have a, a, a certain person translating for you regularly, the same person? Uh, who Actually, I must honor Professor Ephraim Karsh that uh, made a lot of effort to publish my articles. He was the head of BESA. Yeah, of course, a very... Uh, very renowned man who's uh, written some fantastic uh, accounts of uh, of history himself. Yes. I've, yes. Uh, no, no, he's the, yeah. a, a one of the best. He wrote a lot of books, more than 17, an expert of Iraq, of uh, 
Palestinian uh, history, Arafat. Uh, he wrote a book de dedicated to Arafat, very recommended. So as, uh, as Israel changes and, and, and you no doubt change as well in terms of your uh, perceptions of what is going on, what do you feel are the, the major issues that Israel is uh, facing uh, today? Uh, is it uh, tied up with the judicial reform program or no, do you see it, it somewhere it, it else? Is the, it, no, the juridical reform is just the stage. It is an excuse to bring the people to the struggle. Actually, it is a huge conflict about the essence of the Jewish state. What really is the meaning of a, a Jewish state? It means the chair I'm sitting upon it is not Jewish, even though I'm Jewish. The state, is it Jewish essentially or just by the fact that Jews are living here? There are two approaches. For Ben-Gurion, the Israeli state is Jewish not only dependent upon how many Jews are living here. It is Jewish by the definite purpose and dedication of it to the redemption of Jewish people. It means that it is unique regarding to all other democratic states. Denmark, for example, doesn't uh, living and guided by a definite uh, purpose for redemption. The regathering of Jewish people is a mission of the Jewish state. No other state in the world guided by a mission defined by that. So the main conflict is not just about democracy. No questions about democracy. The fact that people are asking questions whether Israel is still democracy is a, a manipulation. It is democracy, it couldn't be nothing but democracy. But the question is how the identity of each one living in Israel connected to the identity of that state as Jewish and leading a conflict about that, we need a leader that he is not only a good manager coming at time to work, we need a leader that he is a prophet, a spiritual leader like Ben-Gurion to bring to the Israelis a new story, relevant story, uh, to define their common identity. And of course, it is really hard just to create a common identity between so many different groups, like the ultra-Orthodox, the Arabs, secular, and other. And it is not enough to speak just about what is called in liberal approach the shared good of all the others, of all the citizens, because we are definitely committed to something much more important than just the neutral definite, uh, the neutral uh, uh, shared good. The neutral shared good not succeeding to bring soldiers to fight and mothers to send their son or daughter to endanger themselves in service. So we need a, a, 
a new relevant story and I'm expecting a leader who do that. You're almost sounding like you're, uh, you're appealing for the Mashiach to come uh, to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's exactly what you have in mind, Gershon. Actually, if we are taking seriously the idea that there is more than one Mashiach, Definitely there are two, Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. So if we have two, could be also 10 and 20. Means that maybe you are also one of those in the sequence of that uh, cluster of leaders could be identified as Mashiach. Mm. Means that it is not one definite person. Okay, that's a great uh, point, and which to uh, to finish up to contemplate that, uh, Gershon. That's a, a really good way to uh, to finish as we uh, speak here with with me in Melbourne and you in uh, in your rustic home in uh, in the Golan Heights. Great, thank you, and Shana Tova to everybody, to all the people, and you know, in uh, the holiday of the beginning of the year, Rosh Hashanah, the Pray the Jewish pray is concentrated in the good and salvation for all the universe, not just for Israel, for my family. We are really praying for the ongoing of all human beings, all universe, because it is a birth of the universe. So we are praying. Well, let's. Uh... Let's get this message out then so that everybody realizes uh, how significant Rosh Hashanah has, has been. And really? uh, I thank you very much for uh, your uh, words today where you've looked back on, on history and you've brought the, the lessons of history and made them relevant for us uh, as we're listening to you today. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Gershon. Shana Tova. Happy New Year. Thank you. You've been listening to a discussion with Major General Reserve's Gershon HaKohen, in which we spoke about the Yom Kippur War and reflected on its significance in Israel's history. My next segment is a repeat of a very special uh, episode I recorded three years ago with Gilly Meisler, the brother of Giora, the most talked about Israeli soldier of the Yom Kippur War, who disappeared missing in action and Gilly has been searching for him and for himself ever since. In the special interview, Gilly, who is a protagonist for the Parents Circle Family Forum, allowed me to record his story and tell how it has had such a profound influence on him. My name is Gilly. I was born in 1961. That makes me 58 years old. My parents came three years before I was born, 1958, from Russia, well, actually from the USSR. Uh, they came with their only uh, small child. He was four and a half years old, my brother. I don't know if you know, but uh, starting in, since the beginning of 1960 until the end of the 60s, uh, I think about until 1970, Jews were not allowed to go out of uh, Russia. Actually, they were not allowed to speak Hebrew, to read Hebrew. So my parents just uh, managed uh, to do that uh, just before they 
you know, uh, what we say, they closed the iron gate, or I don't know how to call it. Let me tell you a little bit about my parents. My father was a mathematician. When they came to Israel after a year or so, he joined the Hebrew University. Uh, actually, he was a very well-known uh, lecturer. My father was a real Zionist from, from almost birth. When he came to Israel, he knew Hebrew fluently. My mother wasn't Zionist at all, just when they uh, knew each other in the beginning of the 50s. So like, she went after him. And then in 1961, I was born, and it, it took her some time to, until she learned the language. But she started to uh, work at the Israeli radio, at the um, Russian department. This was a small department that broadcasted, I guess you know what shortwaves are, uh, to those Jews in, in, in the USSR, and actually after short time she became also very famous one she she made uh, shows uh, radio shows about uh, israel about the history about the music uh, etc they say that when the jews came in the early 70s first they went to the western wall and then the second place they came to the radio looking for my mother we uh, settled i mean we my uh, parents settled down in jerusalem very, very simple, modest, uh, three rooms uh, apartment in a huge uh, block. Then I was born, me and my brother in the same room, very small room, most of the time fighting, uh, seven years difference between the two of us. It was my parents' dream to find a new, bigger apartment that they will be able to uh, separate us. Nothing special about my childhood. Let's say it was quite normal. I don't think I'm normal, but the childhood was normal. In 1972, my brother finished high school. His main subject was what you call uh, Eastern studies, uh, Islam, Arabic. He knew how to speak uh, Arabic fluently. He knew how to read. He knew how to write. As they do today, also in that time, those... The, uh, the army wanted to take to the intelligent, uh, to the inte intelligent unit, but my brother didn't want to because it was very important for him to be a, a fighter, you know. Uh, and, and in that time, it was a big um, prestige to be at the tanks unit. So he joined the tanks. 1973, October, I'm in my seventh grade. That year, Yom Kippur was on Saturday, on Friday and Saturday. My brother was supposed to come at that uh, weekend. My mother uh, prepared a meal. You know, we are atheist family. We don't fast. We don't, you know. And then on Thursday, he called uh, at the evening time, and he said that he will not be able to come. Didn't say why. He talked with my mother, talked with my father, uh, wanted to talk also with me, but I refused uh, because we had a big fight on last time he was, so I, I didn't want to talk with him. Then Friday, uh, Yom Kippur Eve, and Saturday, 10 minutes before 2 o'clock p.m., all of a sudden, siren, 
And the Yom Kippur War, uh, the 1973 war began uh, when, um, you know, Egypt, um, Syria from the north, Egypt from the south attacked Israel simultaneously. A day passed and two days and a week and ten days. We didn't hear anything about my um, brother, but that was, wasn't uh, strange because uh, nobody heard uh, from their dear ones. Think about after two weeks, my parents started to get really worried and they started to um, make phone calls to other uh, parents of his uh, friends. Maybe they heard something, maybe they know some information. My mother, she worked at the radio and she knew journalists, uh, military journalists, and started to, you know, ask them, maybe they can check when they're going to the front, etc. October 24 was the ceasefire. October 29, one of his good friends came home to Jerusalem for a few hours, short leave. He got this uh, because it was the 30th day of uh, since his father passed away, so they let him to to go to the uh, to the cemetery. And then he asked his mother, maybe she knows any information about the other friends. And then she told him, you know, about Giora, Giora is the name of my brother. Uh, nobody heard. The parents are very worried. And then he said, how come? It's impossible. I met him on October 15. Giora was with uh, uh, water and towel, and and uh, and uh, we spoke for a few minutes. And then he called also my parents and let them know this information. That time, our biggest uh, hope was that Giora is a POW, a prisoner of war. The only thing we knew is that he was fighting uh, in Sinai at the south against Egypt. We didn't know any other information. My parents bought for the first time uh, TV because uh, in, in, in Jerusalem you could um, uh, see the Jordanian TV and there they interviewed Israeli POWs from uh, Egypt. And we used to sit every evening was like a, for half an hour looking and it was around the middle of uh, November when one day in the in the in the evening time at the main uh, news uh, they said that uh, just now Israel and Egypt signed an agreement and they exchanged the names of the POWs of of each uh, side and they said that within the next 24 hours special uh, messengers will come and uh, knock in uh, every door in every family and let them know. I can say that, uh, you know, that was really the toughest uh, day, night. Uh, I remember myself waking up in the morning, uh, running to my parents, you know, asking, did anybody come? They didn't sleep the whole night, and they said, no, no, nobody came. I uh, agreed to go to the school only after they promised me that if there will be any news, they will uh, call me. 
I remember myself sitting in the classroom, looking at the door, uh, you know, hoping the, I don't know, the secretary will come in and say, Gilly, please go home, your parents are calling you, or something like that. But that didn't happen. At that time, for the first time in the IDF, uh, they opened the MIA unit, Missing in Action Unit. There wasn't such a unit before 1973. But because it became like a phenomena at the beginning, there were almost uh, 1,500 uh, MIAs. But after some time, most of them were, you know, just, you know, no no information. But this uh, list shrank to a couple of hundred. I don't want to go into too much details, but let me say that, my, that, that the story of my brother is... Uh, uh, maybe the most famous, uh, like he was the most famous MIA of that war. I'm talking about, you know, main uh, headlines in the first uh, in the page of the newspapers, etc. Why? Because mainly because of this testimony of his friend, uh, he was uh, hypnotized for several times and was sticking to his uh, story. Other information that I will not get into it. Then there was another mystery about, uh, at that time they knew already the number of the tank. And it turned out that this tank uh, was the only one, and it's not, not, not was, but is, until today, the only tank in the history of the IDF that uh, they don't know what happened to it. Time passed, uh, I can tell you about rumors, different rumors and then 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 time passed but uh, the MIA unit uh, started to investigate it uh, investigate after several months they closed it opened it again um, real information they didn't uh, succeed now let me tell you this I was 12 years old when the war started I can tell you that before the war I wasn't interested in any way, you know, in politics. I didn't listen to the news. I, I, in the newspapers, I read only the sports column, nothing else. After the war, uh, it really like 180 degrees changed. I was completely different. I was very much involved. And after some time, I started to feel really, you know, lots of anger. And in some point, I really looked for uh, how can I revenge what happened to my brother. At that year, we studied in school Arabic, but uh, I refused to go into the classes. That time in Jerusalem, not only in Jerusalem, but mainly in Jerusalem, started uh, so many uh, demonstrations against the government. They, were, they started talks between Israel and Egypt and uh, and. Uh, I really, as a 12 years old kid, I think there wasn't even one demonstration I wasn't there. Some point, uh, I don't know, I guess you know who was Rabbi Kahana, very right-wing racist, I can say. And he uh, established uh, some years before that the Kach uh, movement. And uh, I guess I was one of the youngest members uh, in that movement in Israel. And I participated with them in so many activities and I don't want to go in, into it. 
time passed. Uh, I'm not talking about days and weeks. I'm talking about months and months. You know, living in our apartment became really difficult. Every day, afternoon and evening time, the house, the 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 apartment started to. Uh, many many people came. Although my parents were only 15 years in Israel, they knew lots of people. My father from the university and many many students. My my brother uh, had a lot of friends, scouts, school, etc. My mother from the radio. At the weekends, it was like impossible. It was like a train station. So at some point, my father decided that we must have some change. He took a sabbatical year. And in the end of that year, I'm talking about uh, the summer of 74, we moved for one year. We rented our uh, apartment in Jerusalem and we moved for one year to Canada, uh, Toronto. Um, why Toronto? Because we have very far relatives there, but very warm people that took care of us, signed me into uh, to, uh, my eighth grade in a Jewish school. And, um, you know, the time passed uh, there in the school. I, I, I don't have anything special to say. I can say that I, as much as I could, I, I, I kept on being involved. I wrote letters to the Prime Minister and to Menachem Begin, who was the head of the uh, opposition. One day, towards the end of that year, in June, we are talking now about June 75, I was sitting in Toronto in the class, and the door of the class opened, and the secretary came in, and she said, Gilly, please go home, your parents are calling you. And I went home. Uh, we lived very in close to the school, and in the living room, I saw a person sitting with my parents. He came from the Israeli embassy, and he was telling us that a few weeks before that, there was an agreement between Israel and Egypt of uh, exchanging coffins, exchanging bodies. The Egyptians handed over 39 bodies, and he said that uh, the, the last body they could identify, we are talking about some years before the DNA days, and he mentioned, uh, you know, he said, with 90-something percent sureness, your uh, son, your brother was identified. Uh, after a day or two, we were already in Jerusalem. Our uh, apartment was rented, so they put us in a small hotel. After a day or two, uh, we had the funeral. I must say it was a huge one. Uh, as I told you, the, the story was already very famous. I remember, you know, headline in the newspaper. They, the body of Giora Meisler was identified, uh, but the mystery of the tank is still on. And, uh, let me say, like in brackets, that Ten years ago, I completed a documentary. Uh, the name of my personal documentary is Fireflies. Um, and this uh, film I made uh, is telling the story of, of the, the disappearance of my brother and what happened to me uh, many years after that in the Far East. Okay, the two stories are combined. Anyway, 
when I interviewed uh, many people, uh, friends, colleagues, etc., that were in, the, in, in this funeral, I was really shocked, really surprised to find out that I don't think anybody believed that it was his body. Like, most of the people asked, did they really bury Giora or did they bury his story? Anyway, about a few days after that, we came back to Toronto, uh, finished our business there, and after two or three weeks, we came back to Israel. They signed me to a high school in Jerusalem, a good one. And the only reason they accepted me is because the principal was a student of my father. Otherwise, there is no way they would accept me. Then uh, let me tell you just one thing about what what I did after several weeks. I uh, wrote something and I went to a print uh, shop and uh, printed a few thousands of flyers. And I used to wake up very early in the mornings for some time. In, and uh, every morning I was in a different uh, high school, standing outside, uh, handing over this flyer. And after several weeks, I established by myself new youth movement, uh, very right wing. And we did, uh, we uh, had a meeting every week and we did many activities. Towards the end of that year, uh, one day, my parents uh, came and said, listen, we are moving to a new apartment. I told you that it was their dream. Now you can say after the war, there was no need to separate me and my brother. But it was so difficult for my mother, you know, being in the same apartment. Every time she went inside our room, she started to cry. So we moved to a newer uh, apartment, a nicer building, a bigger one, a third floor. Uh, then in, this, in the summer between my ninth and tenth grade, I started to smoke cigarettes from time to time. And one day I went down and the gardener saw me and he, like, you know, he called me and offered me a cigarette. Uh, he used to come twice, three times a week, taking care of the garden, cleaning the stairs. And we sat down and, you know, had a cigarette together. And what's your name? What's your name? And his name is Ali. He's from East uh, Jerusalem, older than me, a few years. And then it became like a habit. We had our quality time every few days, having like 10, 15 minutes our cigarette. And we started to know each other. Then I, I, you know, every time I left him, I, I, I said to myself, what's going on here? He's an Arab. I hate all the Arabs. How come I'm sitting with him? But then, after a few times, it made me think, and I started to say, no, no, I, I, I'm not that kind of person. I don't hate all the Arabs. I don't hate all the women, all the gays, all the blacks, or I don't know, I refuse to be that kind of person. And uh, it also made me think, I decided that I want to learn the Israeli-Arab and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, I wanted to learn it by myself. I think the first thing that happened was that I stopped 
going uh, to those uh, meetings with the youth movement that I... Uh, Ali changed my life. Uh, he doesn't know that. I must say that we kept for many years uh, in contact. He was in my wedding and I didn't see him for some years and uh, I'm Every time I'm telling this story, I say to myself, I must go and tell him, and I, and I will do it one day. I think that's it. This is my personal story. You've been listening to a soliloquy by Gilly Meisler in which he expressed his personal story that relates to the Yom Kippur War. Before I go, I'd like to play a rendition of a well-known song, 16 Tons, which has the chorus... You load 16 tonnes, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And the version I'm going to play is in Yiddish. Oh, I went to work in a delicatessen For 30 to learn, plenty to fressen The ballebus promised me a real gedille Instead of gedille, I catched me a killer You load 16 tons of hard salami Come before old beef and hot pastrami I hock a rind, everything gets to essen I owe my nishumi to the delicatessen I was born one morning and I gave a geschrei My mishpuchi was happy, it was a holiday I wanted my bottle, I felt real chipper I didn't get nothing cause it was Yom Kippur Sixteen tons, all kinds, smoked fishes Latkes, blitzes, and hasty knishes Oh Lord, it never schnell to the promised land A fire of boss, soll er werden verbrennt Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.